This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Civil Rights Journey, the story of a white Southerner coming of age during the Civil Rights Revolution. And the author is Joseph Howell. And Joe joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Joe. Uh, hello. Great to be here. Well, great to have you with us. Uh, fascinating story. Obviously, you're going to take us back into some uh, very emotional and even troubling times, but the overall result is much different than it was back in the 50s, right? Well, it's it certainly is. We've come a long way, and, and growing up in the 60s, we were right in the middle of it, and I think it was a real, uh, real blessing to be young at, at that time in our nation's history, and, and so, so much change, and I think change for the better was happening at that time. Here's what you've written about your book. The centerpiece of the book is a diary that I kept when my wife and I worked with Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the Civil Rights Movement in 1966 in Southwest Georgia. And of course, you've put your, uh, person, you put some, uh, personal information as to what caused a white Southerner like you to get involved in the first place and, you were very young when you got polio, and that had a great effect on you. Why, why did that have such an effect on you and your tie to civil rights? Well, actually, just going back and uh, uh, stepping back just for a second in terms of the diary, I, we, we really discovered this in a dusty pile in the attic. I had no idea that I'd written this diary, uh, but I must have had I must have had something in mind when I did write it because I, it seems like not only was it a personal diary, but it was written to to I think. Uh, ultimately a, a wider audience. And uh, I tried to get that book published uh, with university presses because I, I felt that it, it stood on its own because it was unique. We were the only white, probably the only white Southern couple working on the front lines of the civil rights movement at that time. But uh, it was too small, too short, uh, and for, for whatever reason it was rejected by most of these Southern press, or all of the Southern presses. So I uh, was encouraged to write a memoir which... Uh, would put it in context, would talk about both the historical context as well as the personal context. And that led me to, to ask the same question you just asked me about the polio and how did that uh, impact it, because I, I concluded when I was thinking about all this that, that one of the reasons that I was different from a lot of my friends that I grew up with was that I'd had this experience in 1952, which basically took me uh, took me out of commission for two years. I, I had a homebound teacher, missed two years of school, and I, and I developed a real empathy with others in similar situations, people that were marginalized, uh, that were uh, suffering at one degree or, or another. And so I think I had a sensitivity to that so that when the, the civil rights movement came along in the late 50s, uh, I was uh, I was more uh, understanding and more accepting and identified with the underdog. And so I think that uh, that experience uh, was was the fundamental pivotal experience that uh, that gave me the impetus to get involved to, to pitch in and do what I could to try to make uh, to make uh, justice happen 
and um, and so I consider myself very fortunate for having had polio, really, and very fortunate, certainly, for this experience. How well were you accepted at first as a white a white couple amongst all these African Americans who were fighting for their civil rights? Well, we knew that the white folks down there would not be too pleased, uh, so we were prepared for that. But uh, what we were not prepared for was that that summer of 1966 and in June of 1966 was a pivotal time in the civil rights movement when the rules began to change. That was when Stokely Carmichael, almost the day that we arrived in Georgia, uh, made a speech in in Alabama uh, where he used the word black power, and, and the whole concept of black power came into being that summer questioning the roles of white people, and for a lot of good reasons for that. So it was very understandable, but we were the collateral damage. And that when we showed up, uh, it was clear that a lot of the, the, a lot of the folks that were on the front lines had been working for, for years for uh, civil rights and, and justice. They we're not so happy to see, uh, to see us white folks sort of arrive on the scene, so we had to work through that, but we did. You had to, uh, they had to uh, gain your, well, they had to gain trust in you that there wasn't another agenda. That's right. They had to gain trust in us. Uh, and it wasn't long before we were, uh, ended up in Baker County, Georgia, which was south of what, of, of what most people call Albany and people who live there call Albany, Georgia. Where then we were we were living with a, a black family in a, in a small f- farmhouse, uh, no running water, uh, but landowners. They owned a uh, hundred or so acres, uh, and and we were welcomed into that family and loved. And and all the local people that we work with were just fantastic people, courageous, uh, and we really came to admire them so much during the summer. So. The the, the 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 SNCC workers, the civil rights workers, uh, were really not present in in Baker County that much. There would be mass meetings and stuff. And but over the over the course of the summer, we developed a, a good relationship with uh, with these workers. And uh, although there was always a little tension, and some of these uh, meetings would go on for hours and hours, trying to sort of thrash through some of these some of these issues. Did you feel threatened at any time? You know, I really didn't, and part of it was uh, probably a little naive on our part because when we had a reunion two years ago, we learned from the family we stayed with that there was a uh, uh, standoff in front of their house the, the year before with the Ku Klux Klan where everyone was armed on both sides and, and guns were drawn, and this was in the house we lived in. And I thought, well, why didn't you tell us about that? <laughs> and they said we didn't want to scare you. We so, didn't want uh, to scare you. They were uh, they were ex- extremely courageous people. But we were uh, we didn't see many white folks. Uh, we were mainly working at Head Start, and the reason we were working there it was the first year of the program. It had to be integrated, and nobody in in Baker County, you know, white folks wanted to to work in the Head Start, which is predominantly for exclusively for African Americans at that point, because the white community rejected it. So we just didn't see these folks. But if we had seen them, I think I would have been somewhat more apprehensive. As it turns out, some of the people that we work with that were in other communities were, in fact, shot at. And 
someone was ro- run off the road at night and was seriously injured in an automobile accident. So there there was danger down there, but it's, it's a little bit like being on the front lines, I guess, in a war where you just don't worry about it. You do what you have to do. Well, and the one thing that sets your book apart so much is that this is an eyewitness account of a white Southerner. Uh, there isn't a, probably a, a book like it. Well, I think you're right. And, and, and the diary part is what gives it its freshness. It would not really uh, have ever happened. I would not have written this book. Uh, and it's amazing the difference between a memoir and a diary, which is, takes up about uh, uh, not quite half the book, is that you you tell it like it is. And, and, and you don't, I mean, and, and everyone who's reviewed this book is that one of the things that comes through most is its honesty. Uh, and and uh, so you 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 see it or feel it for what it was like when you were there. But I also think having the memoir part, putting it in perspective, really does strengthen the book a lot as well, and bringing in uh, as well other history as well as uh, as uh, my own my own personal experience. But uh, it 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 uh, certainly was uh, a, a challenge in many ways to sort of negotiate these. These minefields, uh, but we did it, and I think we, when all is said and done, you have one of the questions that I ask a lot in this diary: Are we making any difference? Is it right? Is this worthwhile? And at the end of the day, I think it was, and I tell, I talk about that in the last chapter when we go back uh, to the reunion several years later. A number you, of you, in fact, in fact, the reunion was just two years ago, so it was forty, forty some odd years after the fact, and find out that in fact, yes, uh, having uh, just being down there is a statement. Not that we really did all that much, I and mean, we worked in several on the Head Start program, attended the mass meetings, and and you know we were, we were we were we were putting our lives quote unquote on the line, so to speak. But you never know what kind of impact you've had. But yes, at the at, at the end, we did did have a positive uh, a positive impact. And you call this experience your coming of age story. Uh, you're part of it's part of you growing up. Well, it really was a growing up time. As I think about it, I can't believe how young I was. I mean, I was—it was not just me, by the way. It was my wife, Embry, who was uh, who was a, a, a equal participant with me, and also was very important in helping put this book together in terms of editing and giving me advice and wisdom and understanding. And we were just children. I mean, we were in those days. People tended to marry a, a lot younger than they do today. Our kids were. In their 30s, when they got married, and we were in our young, in our early 20s, and so we really were, we really were young, and 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 trying to, a part of what the theme in this book is trying to come to grips with the nature of evil in the world and suffering. Why does it exist, and what is our responsibility as human beings to? Do what we can to address this situation, and and, and there's no answer, of course. Uh, but there are opportunities that all of us have in our lives at one time or another to step up. It may not be quite as dramatic as civil rights. It may be something else. But these opportunities do come, and the important, important thing is to to do the right thing when those opportunities do come. And part of that is a coming-of-age experience and just simply growing up. How did your family and friends react to your civil rights involvement? Well, you know, that's a, uh, a question a lot of people ask, especially about my, my parents, who my father was a banker, ended up being a bank president, and his father was a banker, ended up being a bank president. I grew up in a 
pretty prestigious neighborhood of Nashville, Tennessee, and uh, so and the, the logical question is, well, how did you know? How did you? How did you what did people <laughs> yeah. like about you? And how did you do that? And my parents were extremely tolerant and open-minded, and, and I, I think really supportive. And uh, so it was really not an issue. They were they were very sort of prominent civic involved people in their community, and uh, but they got a lot of flack from their friends and said, "Oh gosh, you know, it's not your fault." And it's not, it was as if I had uh, been a member of the Communist Party or a drug <laughs> addict or dropped out of college or that sort of thing. And I did have my a door slammed in my face one or two times by people in my parents' generation who had felt that I had really crossed the line. But overall, my friends basically didn't give me a hard time about it. I think most people respected me for it. They might not have agreed with me, but they respected me for it. And I can't say that I've suffered really in any in any way at all. And I, I, I feel very grateful that I've maintained all my all my friendships with my people who were my peers. What advice would you give, especially to young people who want to change the world for the better and make a difference? Well, you know, I, in some ways, things are very different today. Some way they're the same. I've taught a course at George Washington University. We're in the honors program for about six years. And, and the students that I had, for the most part, were very idealistic and really wanted to make a difference, just as I did. Uh, and many of them go in the Peace Corps or, or do things for nonprofits at least for a while and, and hope to get into a, a, a profession that's maybe a helping profession or at least that has a, that, that has uh, the opportunity to make uh, to make change. So I think you follow your instincts. You you try to stay in touch with your values. Uh, you you remain open-minded. Uh, you fight for what is right, but you. You you don't reject others who disagree with you, and it's a tough it's a it's a tough walk to walk. This and it continues. And I I don't feel a hero in this at all. I feel like that this is uh, something that continues throughout your whole life of trying to get it right and trying to do the best that you can, knowing that you fail most of the time, and knowing that you're really not any better than anybody else. Uh, but you uh, have an obligation, I think, in terms of integrity to do what you believe is the is the right thing. So young people, we all ha- are, 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 are have a harder time in some ways because the issues are more complex, they're more economic, they're more grave. In those days, it was really was a more clear cut, quote unquote, black and white issue, and and it's, so it's harder in that respect. But I think the desire is still there, and I'm very hopeful and inspired by the young people that are coming out of college today, especially the, if they're anything like the the, the the students that were in my class at George Washington University. You've had quite a few unsolicited reviews of your book, which are very positive. Well, I feel really, really gratified and, and humbled by the, the reviews that I've gotten so far on Amazon and, and uh, some people have, have written me emails and said how much they like the book, and I said I've asked, well, you know, if you like that much, you know, it'd, it'd be great to put a put a review on Amazon, and they've done that. But, uh, but others have just just they've just popped up there on their own. So I feel like that the initial response that I've gotten has been very positive. My hope is that it will 
it will extend out now to a broader audience of people that that don't know me, obviously, uh, people who uh, have an interest in social justice, an interest in civil rights, an interest in some of the issues that uh, that I try to deal with in the book, and I'm hopeful that that will happen. But very pleased so far that the response has been so so strong and so positive. I got a great review from Kirkus, which is the industry standard that in terms of the initial reviews that come out. So I'm um, keeping my fingers crossed, as they say. The title of the book, Civil Rights Journey, the story of a white Southerner coming of age during the Civil Rights Revolution. And the author is Joseph Howell. Joe, tell us how to get your book. Well, it's available through Author House, which is the publisher on the, on the web. It's all, it's all online is the way to get this book. It's also available on Amazon and Barnes and & Noble, and I think any online bookseller. So just type, you know, go to those sites and type in my name, Joseph Howell, Civil Rights Journey. And this is not your first book. You've had another book in print since 1973. Uh, that's right. Uh, that, that's right. That book is... Uh, uh, um, it's called uh, Hard Living on Clay Street, and it's a story of blue-collar families, uh, day-to-day life, uh, getting by in very difficult conditions. And I'm very pleased that it's been in continuous print. It's sold a whole lot of copies. Thank you, and Joe. I still get calls about that and, and comments from <laughs> even after the you know 40 years after the fact. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Great. It was my pleasure. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Do you love finding fabulous deals and enjoy fashion and discussing celebrities? Then you've touched the right dial. Join the lovely ladies of Celebrity Coupon with your host, Elisa Nicole, Lakeisha, and Raquel, as they get your weekend started off right. Every week on Friday at 6 p.m. Central on Toginet.com. They'll be discussing great deals on hot products, affordable fashions, and the latest celebrity news. We know you'll feel good after listening to this show and eager to come back the following week to tune in and hear news, tips, and advice on how to save while shopping for amazing products. For more on your Celebrity Coupon hosts and amazing deals and downloads, check out their webpage at CelebrityCoupon.com. You never know who'll be joining them and what giveaways they'll have. It's talk radio like never before. Celebrity Coupon with your host, Elisa Nicole. Lakeisha and Raquel. Friday afternoons at 7, 6 central on toginet.com. It's time to get your boots on with the boot campaign with hosts Megan Roth and Bailey Gray. Thursdays at noon, 1 central on toginet.com. Sponsored by Austin Bank. The whole point of the boot campaign is to continue the true grassroots initiative developed by a group of patriotic women known as the Boot Girls. Inspired by the true story of Marcus Luttrell, the lone survivor, the Boot Girls got started with celebrities but want every American to get your boots on by purchasing a pair of the Give Back Combat Boots. The campaign's motto is simple. When they come back, we give back. For more on the boot campaign, go to the website, bootcampaign.com. The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show will feature discussions on current events impacting the lives of active duty and retired military, interviews with our nation's war heroes, medical professionals, and celebrities who have put their boots on. Do your part and join us for The Boot Campaign Get Your Boots On Show with Megan Roth and Baby Gray, Thursdays at noon, 1 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. 
The title of the book, Expect More. Children can do remarkable things. And the author is Dr. Anne Grawl Rochelle. And Anne joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Anne. Hello, Steve. How are you this morning? Well, this is going to be a very exciting discussion about our children's education, how we need to expect more. This is what you say. This book is an invitation to teachers and parents to embrace the notion of regenerating the entrepreneurial spirit in our children. By entrepreneurial spirit, I mean having that willingness and perseverance to embrace challenges, the interest in solving problems, and the confidence to take risks. Simply stated, we need to expect more. That may be rather controversial with some, (laughs) but I think we all understand that in order to progress in anything, in order to learn, we have to be challenged. That's right, Steve. I believe we do have to be challenged, and I don't see it as controversial at all. I see it as um, an absolute necessity in our society. Uh, We continue to dumb down America uh, with lowering the reading levels in books um, by not having high enough expectations, mostly of ourselves as adults. And so when I talk about expecting more, I think we as adults in America need to model our own intellectual curiosity and really our own sense of wonder with the world around us. Everyone is moving on fast forward and we can access information instantaneously and yet there's very little slowing down and modeling for children how we as adults need to be critical consumers of information, how we need to verify websites, how we need to uh, think about where we're getting our information and what the source is. And those are all ways in which we as adults can begin to expect more of ourselves so that children understand that we value learning. Tell us about your professional background, your teaching background, Anne. I've been in education since 1974 and um, currently teach uh, two classes at Lake Forest College. Uh, They are classes for seniors uh, right before they student teach. And I also consult with schools throughout the Chicago area, mostly focusing in on helping teachers build curriculum that focuses on higher level thinking, critical thinking, and problem solving. And uh, throughout my career, I've taught uh, both at the first grade level, I've taught at the uh, middle school level science, and have worked on a National Science Foundation grant at the Chicago Botanic Garden. Um, I also served as science coordinator for the Regional Office of Education, coordinating science curriculum uh, for the 45 school districts in Lake County, Illinois. Well, you've seen it all, experienced it all, it sounds like, and I think we all understand We live in this highly competitive global economy. Uh, We hear so much about the Chinese and what they're pushed to uh, learn and, and develop greater and greater skills. And you point out very, I guess, emphatically that science and social studies have been moved to the back burner. Now, where are we and why do we need to put it into the forefront? 
Well, first of all, to explain how science and social studies got to the back burner, when NCLB was initiated, uh, we had a tendency to focus the test on math and on reading and writing, and certainly those are very important areas of the curriculum. However, because of the myopic focus on testing those things, teachers had a tendency to push science and social studies to the back burner because they were not tested. And uh, so, so we've seen a real decline in those within the curriculum. And um, they are certainly the areas of the curriculum where, number one, you gain such student interest. If I go in and do a hands-on science activity, uh, the sense of wonder and the sense of engagement is absolutely amazing. And um, social studies, there are so many important issues to discuss uh, in terms of um, being an active citizen, uh, understanding uh, the current political realities, and, um, and I mean from a perspective of helping children understand where they find information and do they verify that information. And so those two areas of the curriculum just offer so many opportunities for thinking and for problem solving. Um, helping students to understand uh, their role as a citizen is to be actively engaged and to participate. And um, so we certainly want to see those things back in, in the curriculum uh, for children to understand that uh, we live in a democracy and that we um, have a system of government that has a balance of uh, checks and balances. And, and those are important concepts for students to learn. And uh, unfortunately, in our current system, social studies often is off the radar screen. As far as science goes, uh, we certainly uh, need to be scientifically illiterate adults. Every day we hear claims, uh, the benefits of pomegranate juice or the benefits of um, a certain herb or a certain vitamin. And so we want children to learn to look at where is the source of, of that research and who wrote it and is it verified. And and so these are all important skills that we need for life, and yet they so often are not taught in our classrooms right now. Well, you hear the phrase critical. You hear that phrase critical thinking, and it's so vital. And you point out that it's our nature, nature as parents, nature as, as even teachers, to protect. We want. Uh, we don't want our children to basically go through hard times or tough times or, or struggle. So it's a kind of a catch-22, isn't it? It is a catch-22, but I think if I can explain what I mean by struggle, um, I, 
I certainly don't want miserable children, and that's not what I'm promoting within my book. Um, but what I am concerned about is that we reached a point in America where we said um, we're going to have kids reading at just right reading levels. We're um, going to eliminate the struggle for them. And um, so as teachers and as parents, um, we go out of our way to to do things for our children. And so they can reach the college level without the skills to know how to solve a problem or how to take on a challenge on their own, um, as opposed to relying on mom and dad to do it. Uh, often when I talk to teachers, I talk about things like uh, spelling errors. We take a student's paper and we circle all the spelling errors, and sometimes we even write the correct spelling for them. And so the only person getting better at spelling is the adult, not the child. And so a much better strategy for a parent would be to simply say, I see in your first paragraph that you have three spelling errors. Can you find them? And so as opposed to us doing the work for our children, we want them to learn how to uh, revise and edit and to think thoughtfully about their work. And of course, our children today have moved indoors, as someone said, an author, Richard Love, is it? Uh, yes, here, Richard Louvre has Louvre. written a book called yes. The Last Child in the Woods. And uh, he actually coined the term nature deficit disorder. So uh, he talks about in his book, and it's a quote in my book, that um, video games became children's imagination as opposed to children being outdoors and uh, pretending and experiencing nature and slowing down and looking at a butterfly or um, a worm or anything uh, around them and looking at it in depth. And so um, our children are on such fast forward with organized activities. And so um, they move from school to uh, the soccer field or the basketball court and while there's nothing wrong with organized sports the children rarely have an opportunity for cognitive rest that comes just from that opportunity to naturally play and be outdoors and of course uh, entertainment seems the whole focus today and not learning uh, well, if there's a balance there, I guess, as, as there is with everything in life. Um, but because of, of the Internet, because of television, um, because of being able to readily access things, um, children do get very used to being entertained as opposed to um, the, the days where we had to create something on our own um, to entertain ourselves. And um, so that imaginative spirit often is missing when we when we see children. Um, we we almost find I take my students on some outdoor experiences uh, with students from one of our local school districts, and we often find that what we have to do when we get out there 
is teach children how to slow down and look. And um, one of my favorite examples was taking kids out in the field to observe insects, and they very confidently ran back five minutes later and, and said there wasn't a single insect out there. Of course, they had run down the path, they had run <laughs> back. And right. um, so we want to slow kids down, um, put a hand lens in their hands, and um, ask them to observe something that they've looked at a hundred times in the past and see what detail they can find in it and what they can discover if they just slowly take a look at something as opposed to zooming past it. And those skills, I believe, build perseverance. And we know as adults that when we ask most adults about anything in life they've been successful at, it isn't because they got it right the first time. Typically, it's the things that we are challenged by, that we have to work hard at, that um, really make us successful as adults. And so if children don't have the opportunity to experience challenge, um, they really don't know how to do that as adults. You pose this interesting premise. Uh, it's a challenge to adults. It's an invitation, as you say, to expect more of themselves To as adults. We need to expect more of ourselves. And then in the connection is we will expect more of the children we care about. That's right. I think that uh, as adults, we need to do some reprioritizing. Uh, we watch, we sit down at the dinner table and we have the television on and we have our cell phones at the table. And so the message sent is that conversation is not necessarily an important thing. And um, I know it sounds relatively radical, but I think that we need to bring back dinner conversation. Uh, we need to bring back time as families together where we are uh, slowing down and valuing one another. And um, so I, I, I think we do need to have higher expectations of ourselves as adults. Um, children desperately need to see us pick up a book or a nook or um, to research something and and learn and continue to be excited about learning. Um, so I always encourage parents to uh, find out some topic that their child is interested in and take time to learn about that topic with their child. Um, one of the research statistics that we're finding is that when children are exposed to more informational text as opposed to storybooks, uh, that we tend to see an increase in student achievement. So if it's dinosaurs, if it's insects, if it's constellations, uh, figure out what the, your child is interested in and then help them discover or research it and become an expert because so much of our focus in schools right now with all the testing is on short, quick answers as opposed to really researching and learning something in depth. So that's my suggestion. And I surmise then from your point of view that the hope of the future to turn around the dumbing down of America is to change ourselves as parents and teachers and thus hopefully change our student attitudes and their expectations of themselves. 
Well, I think that we have a huge responsibility right now in America to value learning, um, and I don't think that learning just happens during the school day. I think it happens every moment. We can be in the car and just uh, tuning in with our child and and challenging them. Uh, let's pick out a, a, a tree. Let's pick out um, a building. Uh, find one change when you look at that tree from the last time we drove by it. And then support that with evidence. What's your evidence? How do you know it's changed? Is there a, a change in leaf color? Are there less leaves? Uh, are there no leaves? Um, but the idea being that um, we want to slow down and kind of observe all those wondrous things that go on around us all the time. Very timely book, uh, Dr. Anne Grawl Rochelle, the title, Expect More, Children Can Do Remarkable Things. Anne, tell us how to get your book. You can go to my website, which is www.childrencandoremarkablethings.com, and that's the easiest way to access it. Thank you, Anne. Thanks so much for being with us on Author Talk. Thank you, Steve. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Information is power, the power to change your life. So be here for Education to Excellence. Some of the most valuable information you may ever receive will be shared with you 7 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday night with Education to Excellence with your host, Bruce Beichman. You'll benefit from insightful shows featuring guests that are proven experts in their field. Little-known facts on how to improve your health by making one very simple change in your morning routine. If you're a high school graduate or working adult and a bachelor's, master's, or doctorate degree from an accredited college would change your life, you won't want to miss this. Education to excellence. Shift your career into high gear without ever attending a traditional college class. Learn investment strategies from proven experts who have a track record of helping normal individuals build abnormal wealth. Check out their website, education2excellence.com. Then join us for the show, Education to Excellence, with your host, Bruce Beichman. Tuesday nights at 7 Eastern, 4 Pacific on toginet.com. Fertility. It's an extremely personal subject. Tune in Monday nights at 9, 8 Central for the Fertility Forum with infertility psychotherapist and expert Phyllis Martin on toginet.com. This is the show about infertility, gaining support, and information. Phyllis will assist you in navigating the disappointments and decisions that often accompany the difficult journey from diagnosis to conception, pregnancy to parenthood. She is passionate about her work and is an expert in the donor egg field, bringing both her personal and professional experience to all she does. Ms. Martin has extensive experience in helping patients cope with infertility, pregnancy loss, adoption, surrogacy, miscarriage, pregnancy termination, and creative family building. She knows what you're going through, and she's here to help. It's the Fertility Forum with your host, Phyllis Martin, Monday nights at 9, 8 Central on Tugginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House, helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of the book, Lavender. And the author is James Mansfield, and James joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Jim. Hi, how are you doing? Good to have you with us. I want to read what you've written just to introduce your book to everyone in general. 
This is a story about a young man who was told to leave home after returning to civilian life by his father. The young man, Spencer Corbin, then moves to Southern California to begin this new life. Once there, he gets a job and soon settles in Hollywood, where he spends his free time bar hopping, going to jazz joints, and attending endless movies. Then he begins having strange dreams about a beautiful young woman called Lavender. A fictitious woman, right? Yes. The girl of his dreams. Yes, I would think so. <laughs> well, she's, what? Actually, she's actually a female clone of him uh, because everything he likes, she likes. Everything. Everything, okay. Perfect. All right. In other words, I guess you might say. <laughs> <laughs> so is Spencer you, Jim? No. Okay. No. Well, we'll set the record straight right away, right? <laughs> I, yeah, I did go to California at that time, and I did live in Hollywood. That's that's true, but uh, no, he, no. It, uh, I'm a musician, he wasn't, and so forth. There's other other similarities. I don't drive a car, he does. There were other <laughs> kinds of things. And I didn't have any uh, love affairs out there until I got married. <laughs> well, this uh, Spencer Corbin, and this is after his military service during the Korean War, he goes to Southern California. He has some interesting neighbors. Tell us about his two beautiful women neighbors. Well, uh, one Saturday morning, he hears a, a little bit of noise outside of his house. He has a bungalow. In, in uh, Southern California, there are a lot of courts with bungalows. And he has a bungalow. And uh, so he looks out and he sees these two beautiful women moving in right next to him. And so he thinks, aha, <laughs> maybe I can score with one of these two or both of these women. But they set him straight almost immediately and tell him that they are lesbians, which is okay. So he becomes friends with them instead of lovers, let's put it that way. Uh, one of them is a, uh, is a, is a uh, freelance painter, and she, she makes her living that way, portraits, uh, that sort of bucolic scenes and so forth. The other one's a librarian. Well, he decide he wants to. He asked. He sees some of the uh, the painter's uh, uh, pictures on her on the wall of her apartment because these people, uh, the two ladies, invite him in for uh, for coffee after he uh, helps them move in and they get acquainted. And he asks her if she would paint a portrait of this woman that he dreams about all the time. And uh, he says, I don't think I'm crazy, but uh, but I would love to have a portrait of her. And she uh, agrees. Well, that's how they get started going together, dating together. And he looks at her as a marvelous idea because she's safe. He's never gonna he's never gonna be forced into any uh, any kind of a of a relationship with her. That is, uh, he doesn't want to get married, and he doesn't want any kind of a uh, that situation. So he thinks it's an ideal situation with her. And her name is Stephanie. That's Stephanie, yes. That's Stephanie. And the other lady's name is? Joanna. Joanna. Mm-hmm. Joanna, does, Joanna is, a, is, is a homebody. She writes, uh, uh, she writes novels, and uh, she's a librarian, and she's getting some of them published, and she's a stay-at-home. Stephanie is the opposite. She likes to go out. And so she and Spencer uh, start dating. They go dancing. They go to symphony concerts, jazz concerts, and, and, and movies and the like. But one little twist starts to happen with Stephanie, right? Yeah, she, 
she has never had any uh, feeling for a man before, only only women, and particularly Joanna. Uh, and uh, he, is, they, she starts having some feelings for him, but then she dismisses them as it's as just a friend, and I really enjoy his company and so forth. And he, on the other hand, uh, feels some stirrings about her too. But he's, this is a gorgeous woman that he's, that he's going out with all the time. But uh, he, uh, neither one of them say anything to each other because Spencer knows that she's in a relationship with Joanna. So why, you know, he's not going to say he would never say give his feelings to her. Uh, and on the other hand, she has no idea of what to do with a, with a man because she's never been with a man, and, and uh, so she uh, keeps her feelings to herself, and that's the way it kind of progresses for a while. Well, we're not going to get into any of the details any more than that. We'll leave yeah. everyone <laughs> hanging to, to find out more for themselves, but... Yeah. Uh, right now, it's an impasse. It probably is an impasse. Right. I mean, it's just not going to work uh, for a, a, an ordinary boy-girl relationship. But as... In many dreams, many of us who dream, we dream of maybe being someone, you know, that we'd really like to be. Maybe we have some kind of, uh, of complex, inferiority complex or whatever. Uh, Spencer, though, loves to be thought of in his dreams as the richest and strongest man in the world. Because he is there. Yeah, he, he is, is there. <laughs> That's right. That's so a great ego trip for him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, everything goes, and he's got this woman who agrees with everything he says and so forth, which is not. But right. it sounds like uh, Lavender talks to Spencer, and there's this man, this mysterious man in his dreams, right? Yeah. Oh, Trajan, you mean? Yes, Trajan. Yes. Great. Tra yeah. That's a great name, Trajan. Where'd you come up with that? <laughs> I got it out of the 16th century. In the 16th ah. century, uh, there's, a, there's a piece called Trajan's Ground. Trajan uh, Ground was probably a popular song of that, of that period, it's, and it was uh, uh, done by one of the 16th century uh, keyboard composers. Now, Trajan rules the world of dreams. That's right. So, so can he make dreams come true? No. No. No, not exactly. Well, no. I uh, uh, unless no. He no. It's only dreams uh, that. Uh, the, uh, incidentally, the name lavender comes around because Spencer's favorite color is, is lavender, and so is mine. That is a connection. And so when he sees this lady, she always wears a lavender scarf when he first sees her. And so she's lavender because that's his favorite color, and that's her favorite color also. And so the cover of the book has a portrait of her. Yes, yeah. Who did that? Is that your... Uh, or, I don't know who that... Uh, the, oh, the, okay. Uh, when you're doing these things, they give you a, a choice of cover, uh, uh, two choices. And one of them I came across, no, this is just a model. I have no idea who she is. Uh, and I just picked her, and then I picked some lavender flowers. I thought it was a good good idea for the book. But it gave you the, you know, a feeling about what she looks like. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Well, the real earthly existence and the dream world... Uh, is it possible that they can become one? It's very possible, isn't it? <laughs> Especially in fiction. <laughs> I can make it possible. You can make it possible. So some interesting interaction now is going to occur. What can you tell us? Give us a little peek. Well, 
the, the one thing that's interesting about Spencer is he has only these dreams. Most people have all kinds of dreams, but he after the lavender dreams start occurring, he never has any other dreams but that. And then they become more and more all the time. Uh, and... Uh, and ultimately, Stephanie appears in, in the dreams uh, eventually, even Joanna once or twice. Uh, so, uh, but uh, after a while, Stephanie's in them all the time. So I guess there's also the uh, the liability of the bar hopper too in your in your story. Yeah, at the very beginning. Now, uh, yeah, he goes out there and he uh, uh, he's a single man and he goes to the bars hoping maybe he'll score with some of the women that hadn't come in there and he and he does at first. But as he gets going with Stephanie, he stops doing that. He uh, he goes to the bars, but he stops picking up women, stops that activity. And uh, Joanna says the reason he's doing that is because he likes you. And that's about as much as we'll get out of that, you know. That, that she feels that he's that he really likes Stephanie, and uh, of course that is the reason he stops picking up uh, girls and so forth. But that's just at the beginning where he does that, gets out of that habit. Well, is there anything to do with maybe let maybe it's not safe for him to do that because of uh, three drunken Marines. No, that's another incident. <laughs> that's another one. <laughs> yeah, right. That no, they 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 uh, uh, that actually ha- that actually happened to me. Mm. Uh, as a matter of fact, that is one incident that did happen to me. Uh, most of the most of the story is it does not happen to me, or I'm not part of it. But that did happen to me once. So but, we have uh, dreams, obviously playing pretty much the dominant uh, theme of this book. And the dream lady and the real lady. What what in the world is Spencer going to do? You're right. That is a good. That's a, that's a conundrum. Yes. Yes. Except that the one lady doesn't exist. Lavender doesn't really exist, except in his mind. But then Stephanie starts having dreams about Lavender, which a couple of them, which is which Spencer <laughs> really strange. Why? How? Why are you? Do, why are you? At? It's the, it's that there's there be you know they they are go together. They talk a lot together. They right. don't have romance between them. But uh, uh, in Spencer's mind, Stephanie comes into the into the dreams because he's got Stephanie on his mind. Put it that way. Well, this has really sparked some uh, other uh, writing ideas, hasn't it? Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Where are you going from here? Well, I have a current novel, which is strictly probably more sci-fi and fantasy than the one than than Lavender, and that's that's right now. I'm just in the process of of. Uh, so I say I got about thirty thousand pages right now. <laughs> got to cut that one down a bit, huh? Well, it's got to be more than that, but you know, <laughs> it's not. It's not finished. It's just in the beginning stage. Okay. All right. All right. Well, any concluding thoughts, Jim, about lavender? Well, uh, I, I guess uh, the only thing I can say is that it, it, is that uh, from a man's standpoint, anyhow, uh, uh, I suppose many men. I can't say. I know some of them do. I talk to them. But many men may have the ideal woman in their mind, you know, but they never find her. Can't happen. Right. Uh, that ideal woman in their dreams. Yeah, that, that kind of perfection. That, that, right. Because even if, even if you love your wife and, and, and have a good marriage and so forth, 
she's not perfect. Of course, you are not perfect either, you know. Sure. But Lavender is. Right. Well, you've created quite a uh, complex situation for Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> I would say so, yeah. Yes, yes, well. <laughs> Jim, tell us how to get your book, The Lavender, and written by James Mansfield. Jim, tell us how. Well, I know that uh, that uh, Amazon has it, and and Barnes and Noble has it on on uh, on the internet. I've seen them, and also uh, it could be they could be purchased from Author House directly from there, and that's about as much as I can know of at this point. James Mansfield, the author of his book Lavender. Thank you, Jim. Thanks for being with us on Author Talk. Okay, glad. 